0: To sin. Temptation comes in many forms and tries to get us to do the things we shouldn't. Temptation can make us believe things that we know aren't true. It can make dangerous things seem safe and evil things seem okay. Temptation is the strongest tool Satan has. We must fight temptation at all times. One way that I've found to fight temptation is to give in to it. If you give in to temptation, it totally goes away. For a while, and if you give in again, it goes away for a while longer. As long as you keep giving in to it, you'll never have to deal with temptation. These have been deep thoughts from a shallow Christian. Would you let the crownsmen know again how much you appreciate them and being here with us? And would you let Kyle know how much we're going to miss him leading worship here on a weekly basis. They did a great job. The great comedian Oscar Wilde was once quoted as saying this, I can resist just about anything except temptation. Everyone in this room from one time or another has been shocked by the actions of someone whom we thought was never capable of such actions or deeds. We were astonished because it appeared as if their actions just came out of nowhere when in reality what we know is that those things have been brewing beneath the surface and the level of their heart for some time before they ever became public news. Well, this morning I want to continue our old school series. we have been looking each week at a different Old Testament character. And this week I want to share a message with you entitled, How to Ruin Your Life. And we're going to look at uh, David and Bathsheba in Second Samuel chapter 11. 2 Samuel chapter 11. Uh, we live in a culture, uh, we are rarely shocked by anyone or anything. And so uh, early on in ministry, someone would, uh, something would happen, someone would have uh, some kind of blowout and someone would say, can you believe that? I you totally shocked and I was absolutely shocked, but 14 years later there are very few things that I find myself shocked by anymore. Uh, well, that's just the culture that we live in. What used to take place in back alleys now is paraded around in broad daylight Uh, Acts of racism, acts of sexual immorality, you name it, we advertise it in our culture and even some celebrate it. And so while we're used to seeing sin play out in our culture and on the nightly news, we often wonder how did that happen when it's someone that we thought we knew so well? How did that person who I thought was honest and ethical, end up embezzling all that money over those years? How did that kid that seemed so straight-laced end up uh, using and selling drugs? How was it that that coach that ran a clean program for years got caught up in all those recruiting violations? How is it that that man who seemed so dedicated to his family, at some point, it came out, he had another family in a whole different state? How did that person go from what we thought was true of them to what we found out and what they were exposed for, what was really true of them? Did they just wake up one day and change into a different person? Was it a conscious decision where they just said, you know what, all these commitments and convictions that I have been living by and modeling and passing on to other people, I'm just going to abandon all of those things. they just wake up one day and make that decision? The answer is no. I heard someone say one time that people are like icebergs. Often we only see a small part of what's going on in their life above the surface, but the great host of what's going on in the heart is below the surface where we cannot see, and it's below the surface in people's lives where the ships get sunk. In 2 Samuel chapter 11, we encounter the familiar account of David and Bathsheba. So the reason I wanted to focus on this as a part of our old school series series, is not because it's such a familiar passage or a familiar account. My guess is this morning uh, when we begin to walk through this passage, even if you haven't been in church, you probably know some of the general idea of the story that took place here. But that's not why I chose this passage. Why I chose this passage is because I believe it's one of the clearest patterns for what actually happens before someone has a blowout and everyone knows it. And so it doesn't matter if it's sexual sin, it doesn't matter if it's an issue of ethical integrity kind of issues, it doesn't matter what it is, in this passage we see the pattern that takes place no matter what the occasion or the sin is. And so I want to walk us through that this morning. So let's look at 2 Samuel chapter 11 this morning. We're going to read a few more verses than normal. We're going to look at verses 1 down through verse 17 this morning. It says, It happened in the spring of the year, at the time when the kings go out to battle, that David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel. And they destroyed the people of Ammon and besieged Rabbah. But David remained at Jerusalem. And then it happened one evening that David arose from his bed and walked out on the king's house. And from the roof, he saw a woman bathing. And the woman was very beautiful to behold. And so David sent and inquired about the woman, and someone said, Is this not Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? And then David sent messengers and took her, and she came to him, and he laid with her, for she was cleansed from her impurity, and she returned to her house. And the woman conceived, and so she sent and told David and said, I am with child. And then David sent to Joab, saying, Send me Uriah the Hittite, and Joab sent Uriah to David. When Uriah had come to him, David asked how Joab was doing, and how the people were doing, and how the war was prospering. And David said, Uriah. Go on down to your house and wash your feet. And so Uriah departed from the king's house, and a gift of food from the king followed him. But Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all the servants of his Lord and did not go down to his house. And so when they told David, saying, Uriah did not go down to his house, David said to Uriah, Did you not come from a journey? Why did you not go down to your house? Uriah said to David, The ark and Israel and Judah are dwelling in tents, and my lord Joab and the servants of my lord are encamped in the open fields. Shall I then go to my house to eat, drink, and to lie with my wife? As you live and as your soul lives, I will not do this thing. And then David said to Uriah, Wait here today also, and tomorrow I will let you depart. And so Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next. And now when David called him, he ate and drank before men, and he made him drunk. And at evening he went out to lie on his bed with the servants of his lord, but he did not go down to his house. In the morning it happened that David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. And he wrote the letter saying, Set Uriah in the forefront of the hottest battle and retreat from him that he may be struck down and die. And so it was by Joab besieged the city that he assigned Uriah to a place where he knew they were valiant men. Then the men of the city came out and fought with Joab and some of the people, the servants of David fell, and Uriah the Hittite die also this is an incredible passage it is incredible because of what happens and how David just keeps trying to manage his sin and so David deals with temptation poorly and then all of a sudden David just tries to manage the consequences so he tries to get Uriah so listen you've been out to a country I'm sure you'd like to go and spend some quality time with your wife knowing that she was pregnant with David's child David was hoping that Uriah would think it was his child that didn't work and so David said, why don't you come and have something to drink? And he got drunk and he's sitting down in his house again. And that didn't work. And so finally, he just said, put him down the front lines. The only way to deal with this is not to repent of it, but to try and manage it. And I'll fix the situation. And so in this passage, we see the pattern. So when we look at this story, we go, how in the world? I mean, this is the guy who said has a, a heart after God. This is the guy who's the apple of God's eye. This is the guy who wrote incredible Psalms. This is, and so, how do we see this? And what we don't understand all along, the day, there are some things beneath the surface in David's life that are going on in his heart before we ever see the blowout where he has to write murder. And here's the point this morning it's the same thing true with every person that makes unwise decisions and sinful decisions. We see the blowout, we step back and go, how did they, and I thought they were, and if it was anyone, not them, and all of a sudden we have no idea how that happened. This passage walks us through exactly what's happening before a person has a blowout and makes choices that often can ruin their lives. So I'm going to walk you through some steps here this morning on how to ruin your life. Number one, allow complacency to creep in. Just just allow a little complacency to creep into your life, a little spiritual apathy. And listen, the foundation of complacency always starts off with this thought. I would never do that. I would never be that guy. I would never be that girl. I would never allow myself to get involved in that. I would never do that. If there was ever a person who could have said that with integrity, it would have been David. David was chosen among the sons of Jesse. He was called a man after God's own heart. He was described as the apple of God's eye. David had a profound prayer life. David wrote psalms that we still sing and praise today. He had suffered for the Lord's sake. He had known the Lord's strengthening. Uh, He had done all these things. David had everything, all the resources of God at his fingertips to draw upon in a time of temptation. But he chose not to. And the same is true of every single one of us in the room this morning. The Bible says this. There is not a temptation that will ever come upon you that God himself will not make a way of escape. But David had the same resources, but he chose not to. That's exactly. We begin to ignore the warning signs and signals that we're sliding down a slippery slope. We sit back and all the time and say, I know, I know, but I would never do that. Fill the blank. Let me make some observations here this morning in the text that might not be obvious in a, in a cursory reading this morning. We need to understand that David's life, some complacency began to settle into his life. First off, uh, warfare was carried out in ancient Israel uh, by farmers, not professional soldiers. And so they would farm for a season, they would plant seeds, they would re-engage in the war. And so since these weren't professional soldiers, uh, they were looking for some leaders who knew something about war. And David was a guy who had lots of conquests. David had the skills, David had the track record, David had the resume, David could take ordinary farmers and lead them into battle and win time and time and time again. And so David, uh, first off, was leading this place, but a little complacency begins to set in. David said, I know what I should be doing, but I'm just going to sit this one out. You guys will be totally fine without me. Look at verse one again. What's it say? It happened in the spring of the year at the time, listen to this, at the time when kings go out to battle. David sent Joab and his servants with him. Do you get that? This was the time when the professional warrior would take all these farmers and say, guys, get behind me. I'm going to lead us into a place of victory. Just follow my lead. And so David just said, you know what? I'll just send Joab this time. I'll just send those servants this time. We've done this a hundred times. We're always victorious. And some complacency began to set up into his life and said, you know what? I'm just going to sit this one out, guys. I know this is the time when kings go off to war, but I'm tired. You guys going without me, you'll be totally fine. When you listen to this, when complacency begins to creep into our lives, what used to be uncomfortable becomes comfortable. Let me repeat that. When complacency begins to creep into our lives, what used to be uncomfortable becomes comfortable. We would have never fudged those numbers early on in our career, but now, yeah, it's not that big of a deal, and I don't want to get too hung up on all the details. We would have never discussed our marital problems with someone of the opposite sex, but now I don't see what the harm can be. We would have never put ourselves in that social environment, but I don't want to be legalistic, and all of a sudden, all these things in our life, all these safeguards and guardrails that used to be comfortable to us, all of a sudden, those things become uncomfortable, and what used to be uncomfortable becomes comfortable to us when complacency becomes begins to creep into our lives. Now, some of you think we're just being a little bit critical on David. I don't know that he really got that complacent. with the guy, you know, it's over and over. Everybody deserves a break. I mean, David was probably on vacation, right? And so look at verse 2. If you wondered, was David really getting complacent? Uh, verse 2 says, this, that it happened one evening that David arose from his bed and walked on the roof of the king's house. The word evening uh, in the original language is best translated dusk. And so the telling point here is David had been napping until late afternoon. That David was, it might have been four, five, six o'clock. David's, not only is he not going out to work, David's, you know what? I'm turning the alarm clock off. I deserve to sleep in. And so David finally rolls out of bed, right? Rides his camel through hardies and, starts and says, you know, it's been a good day. Indulging himself that his has been round on the battlefield, he got up from his bed at dusk when it was light enough to endure make the observation of Bathsheba on the rooftop he started to rock around on the roof and so what happened here David began to disengage from responsibility I don't want to go to war like kings do I want to sleep in I want to stroll around on rooftops at my leisure the theme of his life became complacency and all of those things sleeping in and skipping the battle and strolling on a rooftop while a war is going on at some point would have been unimaginable This was a guy who had incredible responsibility. This was a guy who had incredible leadership. And so all of these things, just stepping back and just kind of strolling about would have been unimaginable. But when complacency creeps into your life, what used to be uncomfortable now becomes comfortable. And that's when you're in a dangerous place. What used to be before, all the warning signs and and, uh, lights flashing, all of a sudden you just turn all those off and just say, I'll be fine. I would never do that. And so for us, it literally does not mean that we're refusing to go out to a literal battle. But for us, it means that we simply forget the fact that we're engaged in a spiritual battle. Have you noticed this? That at times in your life when Satan gets the upper hand in regards to temptation, he never knocks on the front door with a pitchfork and says, Hey, listen, I don't know if you're busy this weekend, but I'm here to ruin your life. He's never wearing the red suit and the pitchfork, right? He just gradually creeps in. You just gradually begin to let your guard down spiritually. You just gradually get a little more comfortable with the things that used to make you uncomfortable. And then all of a sudden, the only person who could ever be attacked and conquered spiritually is the person who's unaware of the fact that they're even in a battle. But that's exactly what Scripture describes of our lives. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12 says this, For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, against the spiritual forces of evil. Second Corinthians chapter 10 says this. For though we live in the world, we do not wage war as the world does. The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. Where are strongholds at? They're in your thought life. And let me tell you the most common stronghold in a person's thought life who gives into temptation is the thought that says, I would never do that. I would never Can you believe what they did? I would never. And it says we demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. And we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. And that's where the battle is always in temptation. Temptation is always saying you would never you can get close to the edge. You can get the thrill of standing out and looking over whatever is being promised, whatever you're being enticed with. But you don't have to fall in. You can can manage this thing. You can control the outcome. You can get your ride and go down and lay with his wife. If that doesn't work, you can get him drunk. If that doesn't work, you can put him out on the front lines. No one will ever know she's pregnant. It always says, I can control this. I can get the buzz off this temptation that I want. But I'm still in the driver's seat. We need to take that thought captive to Christ. Let me add this. The longer you walk with Christ, the harder this becomes. Because familiarity often leads to complacency. Complacency comes from a sense of predictability. You know the reason David didn't go out to war this time? David didn't get up and say, guys, I'm not going out because I'm uh, going to spend my afternoon on a rooftop. And there's a woman out there. Listen, if you're from Kentucky, David would have said, she's naked, all right? that, That thought never entered his mind. But David thought he could predict the outcome. And that's what happens in complacency. What is familiar all of a sudden becomes predictable. And when predictability sets in, I know how it's going to turn out. I know we're going to win the war. I know God wouldn't let me do that. I know God's going to make a way of escape. I know God, all these kinds of things, all of a sudden complacency begins to creep into our lives. And what happens is this. When complacency leads to predictability, you no longer need to hear from God because you already have a general idea of how things are going to turn out. I don't have to go out. Listen, I don't have to go out to the battle. We've won a hundred in a row. I know how it's going to turn out. And all of a sudden complacency begins to creep into life. So let me ask you a question. How exciting is your Christian life? Or has it just become predictable? You see, what the reality is, is most Christians uh, are living what I call neutral Christianity. Where we go to church and the goal is, is not to, you know, charge the enemy. I love what a guy said. He said, I'm charging the gates of hell with squirt guns, right? Like, it's, that's no longer what we're doing. We're just kind of in neutral, uh, just trying to be moral. We're not advancing the cause of Christ. We're not uh, serving in an area we're not sure we're gifted at. We're not taking risks and going on mission trips. We're just trying to be moral and, and not get ourselves in trouble. Listen, that's not exciting. You can only grit your teeth for so long. Jesus Christ didn't die for morality. Jesus Christ died to transform hearts by the gospel, and we should be advancing that gospel at every chance we have. so here's the question. Does that describe your Christian life? Or are you just trying to come to church and not let anybody hear you cuss every now and then, right? Are you advancing the cause? When's the last time you dug into Scripture and became so excited by a new discovery? When's the last time you took a risk and signed up for a mission trip that you weren't sure you had the resources for but God had called you When's the last time you served in an area like, I don't know if I can do this. God, I need you to work through me. When's the last time you prayed for something so big that only God could show up and answer that? Parents, let me just say this to parents. Listen, this is crucial to a parent because if your children watching you live your faith, don't see it as something that's adventurous and exciting. They'll go out looking for a more exciting story and sin always promises a more exciting story. But complacency begins to creep in it's just predictable i know how it's going to turn out i know i know all this guy, i don't even need to hear from god i know how the story's going to play out guys go up to battle i'll just sit back and so if you want to ruin your life first off let some complacency begin to settle into your spirit the second thing if you want to ruin your life is this begin to justify self-indulgence begin to justify self-indulgence you know what's going to happen this weekend some of you are going to eat more than you should right you know i found myself last night Pondering, Do I need that third hamburger? Yes, I do. God knows I need my strength to preach in the morning. Amen? Like we just just find ourselves justifying self-indulgence over and over. And you justify self-indulgence by only consulting yourself. And you and I always affirm what we want and why we should have it. Do we not? Now on the surface, it appears that David is, is not doing that. Because David makes an increment. David could just say, hey, I'm the king. Bring her to me. But David kind of goes and says, kind of a, a graduate, seems to not be you know, just a flaunting his uh, you know, king, a uh, ship and all this authority, seems to be uh, you know, willing to ask some questions. But that's not all. Throughout his situations, David asks someone to check in who is in no position to tell him no. There's not a lot of accountability when everyone you ask for, for feedback gets a paycheck from you. Do you know that? When you only ask people to give you feedback, they get a paycheck from you. There's not a lot of accountability. That's true in David's life. That's true in your life. That's true in my life. One of the things we're asking here as a church, as a staff, is who's in a position to tell me no? That's an unhealthy thing. Have you heard the uh, thing that says this? Absolute power absolutely corrupts. That's true in all spheres of life. It was true in David's life. And so no one could tell David no, but but at least the servant tried to hint at David and say, I don't want to get my head chopped off, but let me tell you who this is, right? Look at verse three. What's he say? And so in verse three, it says, so David sent and inquired about the woman. And someone said, is this not Bathsheba, the daughter? Listen to this. He could have just said it's Bathsheba. Who's that lady that's naked, right? Like, who is that? Bathsheba oh bring her here no no what's the servant say he's kind of playing a little cool he don't want to say David no David's like I signed your paycheck so he gives it a Scripture. he doesn't have to give he says Bathsheba he said the daughter of Eliam the wife of Uriah the Hittite he said David he said I know that you're up there and listen you, you saw her and she was attractive and you know she was had no clothes on, and so I get the first look, but David, the first look has now turned into a lingering look, and David, you shouldn't do this, and so he wasn't bold enough to that because David could have cut his head off, but when he says, David, this is someone's daughter. This, this is someone's wife. But David wasn't looking for accountability. He was looking for accessibility, so those descriptive words about being someone's daughter and someone's wife fell on deaf ears. David saw a woman he wanted, and he thought, why, why should a person like me Be denied the things that I want. I've united a kingdom. I I slayed a giant with five smooths. I mean, listen, after all that I've done, God understands if I just indulge here for just a moment. I'm tired. I can't go out to battle anymore. We say that every time. And every one person who engages in choices that ruin their life thinks the exact same thing. We justify our self-indulgence because we only console ourselves. And and after all, God wants us to be happy. And so we have all these conversations that we don't let anyone else part of because we know that we're going to say yes, just like David was saying yes to himself. And why should I have the sex life that I deserve that my wife is withholding from me? Why should not I have the security and safety that my husband is not providing for me? Why shouldn't I have the things that they have when I work twice as hard as they do? Why shouldn't I do to them what they've done to me? At the end of the day, I know it's wrong. I know what the Bible says. But I deserve, after all the hell I've lived through on earth, I deserve a little bit of heaven. And given my circumstances, God understands and God desperately wants me to be happy. You've heard me say this like a thousand times. You can probably repeat what I'm getting ready to say. Listen, God's not nearly as interested in your happiness as He is in your holiness. God said, listen, I'm holy. Be like me, right? And you know what David needed? David needed someone to say, no. No. David needed someone to tell him that his self-indulgent lifestyle was going to ruin himself and the people around him. Do you know what you and I need in our lives? We need someone who has our permission to step into our lives and say, whoa, 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 whoa. This, this is going to turn out bad. And I know in your mind you think you can manage the outcome. And I know in your mind you've justified that God wants you to be happy given your circumstances. But listen, I'm your friend. I love you. Let me step in your life and tell you, no, this is incredibly unwise. Let me tell you why that doesn't happen. It's not because you're a king. Turn to the person next to you and say, you're not a king. You can tell them that. Yeah, some of you got a little too excited. You're like, you're not a king, right? Here's why. It's because the natural drift of a person who's self-indulgent, who's entertaining all these ideas in their mind, the natural drift of that person is towards isolation. Why is that? Because what I said earlier, you justify your own self-indulgence by only consulting yourself. And you and I always affirm what we want and why we should have it. Do you know know why people won't come to counseling? It's because they don't want anyone to to say, hey, what you're doing is going to end up poorly. You know why people like to come in this big room and get helpful information, but not get into a small group where someone's going to start asking questions about their life? Because someone may tell them and get close to them and say, hey, you shouldn't do that. You say that's meddling. You know what the Bible calls that type of meddling, life on life? It calls it discipleship. And you and I desperately need people. You know why? Because we have wicked hearts, according to Jeremiah 17.9. We are so easily deceived by our own hearts that we need someone who's outside the boundaries of our emotion to look into our life and say, "Hey, listen, I love you. And so because of that, let me tell you, no. This is unwise. But listen, the person who's entertaining self-indulgence always drifts towards isolation. I've watched it over and over. People who start getting into self-indulgence. That's why they start distancing themselves from the church. That's why they just, they no longer come anymore because they don't want anyone to get close to them because someone may stand up for the cause of Christ and say, what you're doing is wrong. And you can choose what you want to do, but you cannot choose to escape the consequences for you and everyone around you. David just said, mm-hmm. Servant, why don't you go? Because I know you can't tell me no. And the servant comes back and says, oh, David, someone someone's..." It's someone's life. David just said, "I deserve it. I deserve it." David began to isolate himself. You know who the only guys who could have told David no are the guys out there in battle who had stood shoulder to shoulder with David on the front lines. They said, "Listen, David, you may be the king, and you may think you're a big shot, but I've stood beside you. I've, you know, been in the battle, in the battle with you. I've earned the right to speak in your life." And David said, "I'm gonna put all those people out there, and I'm gonna sit back here totally isolated." And we do the same thing over and over and over. We put ourselves in environments where other people can see self-indulgent patterns never again. Listen to Proverbs 14, 12. Proverbs 14, 12 says this in the New Living Translation. There is a path before each person that seems right. I mean, it seems like a good idea at the time. You ever said that about Anything? Like something, some decision you made that come back being a terrible decision and you step back from that decision you're like, you, you know what? That ended in a disaster. But at the time, it seemed like a good idea. I told you my story last week when I was on Ambien. Listen, at the time, under drugs, it seemed like a good idea to eat a whole bowl of salsa at four in the morning. That idea. Right? At times, it seemed, it seemed like a good idea that... <laughs> For a while, ago, I went to my doctor. My doctor said, You know what? I said, He said, you probably should lose some weight. I said, You know what? I'm getting sick of coming here. You're saying that every time I come here. And so I thought, I'm going to get fired up. I'm going to take off. I'm just going to start running. And I remember having, at the time, it seemed like a great idea. You ever get that time when you're running and it seems like your organs are on the outside of your body? You're thinking, Whose idea was this? Right? So I called Tasha. I said, Come get me. She said, Where you are you? I said, you end to the driveway. Come help me. I'm just going to stay here and sleep in until about 4 o'clock in the afternoon. Let those other guys go out and fight the battle. I'm tired. Seemed like a good idea. I'm just going to isolate myself from all the guys who have been fighting battle with who can tell me no and have earned the right to tell me no. Seemed like a good idea. Listen to Proverbs 14, 12. There is a path before each person that seems right, but it ends in death. Now think about that. How in the world does a path that seems so right end up in death? How does that happen? Let me tell you why. It's because no one was around to say, hey, that's not going to end well. Hey, you're being deceived by your own emotions. Hey, you're you're a little self-indulgent here. And no one was around. So all of a sudden a path that seemed right because no one was around to say it looks right, but it's not right. It ends in death, The Scripture says. Listen to Proverbs 15, 22. Plans go wrong for a lack of advice. Many advisors bring success. You know when you will never get many advisors that bring success in your life? When you isolate yourself. Why do you isolate yourself? Because you're self-indulging. You are self indulgent. you do not want anyone to tell you that's a bad idea. Proverbs eleven fourteen. 14. Where there is no counsel, the people fall. But in the multitude of counselors, there is safety. But the drift of a self-indulgent person who says, I know it's wrong, I know what the Bible says, is they just begin to isolate themselves. Why? Because they don't want any counsel. They don't want anyone to speak in their life. That's exactly what happened to David. So listen, if you want to ruin your life, allow a little complacency to come in. Allow what used to be an uncomfortable thought become a comfortable thought. And then just get to the place where you start to justify all your self-indulgence and isolate yourself where no one can tell you, hey, bro, that's a bad idea. That's exactly what happened in David's life. And so if you want to ruin your life, start just justify all the self-indulgence that's going on in your head. But remember, every time you go down that path, remember how the story turns out. Here's the third way to ruin your life. third way is this, is to ignore sin's progression. Ignore sin's progression. I want you to hear me clearly this morning. Sin is always a work in progress. It never happens just like overnight, like some person went to bed and they were saying, now I lay me down to sleep. I pray the Lord my soul. And they wake up the next day and say, I'm just, I'm I'm divorcing myself from all of that truth. And all of a sudden it's always a work in progress, a series of steps to take us near and near. All the while we're deceived into thinking we can manage the outcome. We can receive the thrill or the benefit that sin is promising, but we can manage the outcome and avoid the disastrous outcome because we would never be as careless as those fools who looked over the edge of what sin was promising and fell in. We would never do that. All the while not realizing sin is progressive. May I remind you of the warning of Proverbs chapter 6, verse 27, which says this, What man can take hot coals to his chest and not get burned? You know what the person who thinks that's ignoring sin's progression, they're thinking, I'm such a man. I can take hot coals to my chest and never get burned. I can manage this. I'm not like those other fools who fell in. I can totally manage this and still get the thrill off of all the temptation that's going on. It's always the result that the reality is that's modeled for us. This account is a more affair of this magnitude. It, listen, it's never a blowout. Like we see the blowout. We see the Aftermath. We see all the iceberg above the surface. We never see what's going on. Listen, it is never a blowout. It's always a progress that sin happens. It's always the result of a slow leak that over a period of time, the person is always deceived and thinking, I can put the air back in faster than it's leaking out, or it's a slow leak, and I can patch it. I can, and if it starts leaking over here, I'll patch it. I can manage the situation so I can get the thrill that sin is promising, but I can avoid the disastrous blowout. I'll just I'll fix it. Send him to his wife's house, and i at work, I'll get him drunk, and if that didn't work, I'll sit down on the battlefield, and everybody will think this was Uriah's child, not mine. I can, I can manage this thing. I can get all the benefits that sin promises entice us with, none of the consequences. You know what? I'm David. I would never do that. I'm the apple of God's eye. We're shocked by the murder of Uriah. But remember, you listen, to the murder of Uriah, if you back up and rewind the tape, remember how the murder of Uriah started out with a guy who said, you guys go on, I'm staying back home. It all started off with a guy who wanted to sleep in and be self-indulgent. It all started off with some complacency. And so we see the blowout like, can you believe that? That same David that was one of Jesse's sons was chosen, unlikely. Can you believe that? It all started off with a guy who said, I'm getting up at five. And I'm strolling around the rooftop and I'm disengaging from all my responsibilities. And I want you to see the progression in David's life because this is the progression. It doesn't matter what type of sin. It doesn't have to be sexual sin, any type of sin. Sin is always a progression. We only see the blowout. but There's a lot going on before that happens. I want you to see the progression. Verse 1, there's uh, spring of the year at the time when kings go out to battle. David sent Joab and his servants with him. David said, I'm not doing it. Verse 2, David arose from his bed at dusk. David slept in all day. Verse 6, and David sent Joab, saying, Send me Uriah the Hittite. And send Job, uh, Joab sent Uriah the Hittite. When Uriah had come to him, David asked how Joab was doing. Da- David acted. <laughs> this is so deceptive. David acted like he was interested in his life. You see that? Look at verse 7. When Uriah had come to him, David asked, Well, how's Joab doing? And how are the people doing? How's the war going? In reality, his motive all along was, you know what? You've been away from your wife for a long time, and so I'm going to send you down to your house because when soldiers are away for a long time, they want to be with their wife, and so you'll lie with your wife. And this is the thing will fix itself. That it work. And so then in verses 11 and 12, it just goes on. and keeps progressing. Uriah said to David, the ark the and Israel and Judah are dwelling in tents, and my lord Joab and the servants of my lord are encamped camp in the open field. Shall I then go to my house eat and drink and lie with my wife? He said, I would never do that, David, and leave you unguarded. Then he gets him drunk, he's drunk, he'll go lay with his wife. That didn't work, and so he says, I'll send you on the battlefield. And now the story ends. You see, you see the progress here? The murder of Uriah all started off with a guy who said, I'm sleeping in. I know how this turns out. I don't need to hear from God. Uh, I, I'm just going to hang out. And Sin is always progressive in nature. Let me walk you through sin's progression this morning. We're almost done. I'm just going to hit this kind of quick. Uh, Here's what happens in this progress. A sinful thought becomes an attractive thought. Sin used to repulse us, now it's an attractive thought. An attractive thought becomes an obsessive thought. An obsessive thought grows into an imagined outcome. An imagined outcome promises a manageable outcome. You, You can fix it, you can control it. A manageable outcome becomes an action. Then an action becomes unmanageable. What did I do? I can't fix this. And then an unmanageable, an action becomes an unmanageable outcome. And that becomes a ruined life. And a life stays ruined through shame. That's how, 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 how does a person live in shame all their lives? Because they want to sleep in. Not literally, but you get the idea. This pattern is spelled out for us in James chapter 1, verses 13 through 15. When tempted by no one, say, God is tempting me. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But each person is tempted when they're dragged away by their own evil desire and enticed. Then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin and sin, when it's full grown, gives birth to sin to death. So let me just walk you through this pattern very quickly in the book of James. First off, it starts off with a desire. Desire wrong? No, but desire left unchecked is like a fire. It consumes everything. And then James there says desire moves to deception. He's dragged away and enticed. The word dragged away is a hunter's term. It literally means snared in a trap. The third step in James there is disobedience. Then after the desire is conceived, it gives birth to sin. And the fourth step is death. When sin, when full grown, gives birth to death. So death to what? Death to everything you thought you were in your life. Don't be deceived into thinking you can manage to send to the point where you still get the buzz, but avoid the consequences because the Bible is so clear. Listen, listen. if David couldn't do it, if David, the guy who five smooth stones slayed a giant, David, the guy who reunited a nation, David, the guy who had won a hundred battles, David, was the apple of God's eye, David, who's a man after God's own heart, David, uh, who just won battle after battle after battle, if David couldn't do it. Listen, you and I can't. And remember how the story ends from James. Death. Death. What are the action steps? We're done. Number one, understand what the battle really is. It's in your thought life. It's in your thought life. What well, used to be an uncomfortable thought, I would never fill in the blank. Now it becomes a comfortable thought. Well, no, it might not be so bad. And I, I kind of enjoy that. I think I, think I deserve that. Number two, lean into relationships instead of running for them. If you find yourself entertaining thoughts, you know are not godly thoughts, and you find yourself isolating yourself from other people and all kinds, listen, the warning sign should be going off all around you. All around you. Number three, build some adventurous faith into your Christian life. You know why a lot of people get involved in sin? It's because they're bored. Sin's always the promise of exciting. Right? Listen, sin is like ice cream. Sin never presents itself as Brussels sprouts, right? Here's the last one. Repent. Don't manage. You cannot manage a spiritual problem in your life. Because sin's always progressing. You say, I can manage it. I can put the air back in faster. It's leaking out. I'm not going to have a blowout. Listen, What's James chapter 1 verse 15 say how that story ends. Death. Death. That's how it always ends. It's how it ended in David's life. That's how you ruin your life. Listen, you know what the word gospel means? It means good news. Here's some good news this morning. If you have found yourself uh, in a place where you have made some decisions in the recent past or in a long time past, here's the good news of the gospel. Jesus Christ will cleanse you and forgive you and you can start new with him today. The Bible says where sin abounds, grace abounds much more. And so I don't care how guilty and shame-ridden and deceived you walked in today, you can walk out, transformed by the power of the gospel and the person of Jesus Christ. Would you bow your heads this morning? If you're here this morning and you've never received Jesus Christ, because if you think, you know what, with what I've done, he would never want me listen. Jesus specializes in putting broken things back together for his glory. Your sin is nothing more than an occasion for his glory to shine through your life. And so I don't care what you've done in your life. I don't care where you were last night or who you were with. This morning, Jesus Christ can save you right where you're seated at this morning. and He wants to. The Bible says that today is the day of salvation. The Bible says don't brag about tomorrow because you don't know what a day will bring forth. Today is the day of salvation. Would you receive Jesus Christ today? Would you pray and ask God to forgive you of your sins? Would you agree that Jesus Christ died on the cross, as payment for your sins, was buried, and rose the third day? Would you confess your sins before a holy God and receive Jesus Christ by faith and faith alone and ask him to save you? Would you do that right in your seat? You don't have to walk an aisle. You don't have to get baptized. You don't have to join a church. You can get saved right where you're at today. Maybe here you can see, you know, I've been saved a long time, but God just really spoke into my heart today. I've allowed myself to deceive myself. I've been telling myself that I deserve something that God doesn't want for me. I know that. I'm isolating myself. I'm finding myself entertaining thoughts that used to be incredibly uncomfortable. And God woke me up today and grabbed me by the shoulders and said, Hey, I'd love you too much to let you go on. But I need strength to walk away from what was tempting me. Would you raise your hand and just say, Pastor, that's me. I'm struggling with some temptation in some area. It doesn't have to be the area like David's life, but just some area. Pastor, I'm struggling with something. I'm feeling tempted. Anybody raise their hand like that this morning? Amen. Anybody else? I just want to pray for you. Amen. God, I pray for every person in this room who raised their hand. I pray for those who should have raised their hand, but were afraid they would admit guilt. God, I pray that they would come to the knowledge of God and realize that whatever you command us to do, whatever you lead us to do, it's always in our best interest for one simple reason. You love us. You always are the father who wants best for his children. And so, Father, give the strength and the courage to walk in righteousness. God, for those who need forgiveness to walk forward in grace, may they be overwhelmed with it today. God, for those who have been isolating themselves, who are not connected to a single person in this church, give them the courage to begin building some relationships so that other people can speak into their lives. God, thanks for loving us when we fail. Thanks for loving us when we were unlovable. Thanks for not leaving us how you found us. It's only because of your grace can we move forward in life. And so we say thank you in the person of Jesus Christ. Amen. Can we say thank you, God, to the God who loves us in spite of ourselves? Amen.